Why are police photographing our license plates? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon and welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My guest today is filmmaker, documentarian, Joshua Zeman. Josh, how are you? Good, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm good, and I'm glad to have you on the show. I know Josh's work in uh, in Cropsey, a documentary that he directed. I've seen it before, but in part of preparation for this interview, I watched it again. It's a disturbing but must-see. That's Cropsey. And, And Josh... I believe in the in, in that documentary you you grew up in the area and you heard all the 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 childhood ghost stories and that sort of got you involved. Yeah, I mean you know this this we had heard the urban legend of uh, an escaped patient who lived theoretically in the basements of the old Willowbrook Mental Institution. That that institution was kind of decrepit and abandoned, and uh, it was many buildings in the middle of our island yes. and we used to go there as kids you know we went what's called legend tripping yes where it's, it's you know it's a familiar folklore term where kids go to some scary haunted house and kind of test test their metal if you will mm. to see whether you know they can stand it you know it's a far cry from uh uh going on the porch of boo radley however and to kill a mockingbird <laughs> Let, let me tell you a bit more, everyone, about Josh. A&E Network is premiering a new original docu-series. It's called The Killing Season, and it's going to premiere on Saturday, November 12th at 9 p.m. with back-to-back episodes. And filmmakers Josh Zeman, my guest today, and Rachel Mills delve into the unsolved Long Island serial killer case and and others. And a nice twist on this, I think, perhaps a new twist, is you do this with the help of amateur cyber sleuths. Is that um, correct, Josh? Yeah, it's uh, kind of DIY CSI Ah. in that. And there's a reason for it, and that's because in the case of uh, the Long Island serial killer, which which are basically in 2011, uh, Suffolk County Police discovered over the course of a couple months basically 10 bodies found along a deserted roadway. Mm -hmm. And 
it, it was fascinating to us because uh, we immediately thought the case would be solved, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. You know, serial killer cases are extremely hard to solve, um, but we thought with such carnage it would be solved quite quickly. You know, you're talking about Suffolk County Police Department, yes. um, which is you know extremely large, well funded, and, and and you know there's also the CSI effect, which is you know from the television show. Uh, the idea that um, there's some piece of technological innovation that's going to solve this case, uh-huh. uh, as we see on TV, it does every every half an hour. Yes. It, in reality, that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, after five years, we wanted to see why this case wasn't solved. But one of the problems was that the Suffolk County Police Department was being very tight-lipped uh-huh. about the case, and as a result this amazing amount of speculation exploded on the internet. Mm -hmm. And so we had to go to the internet to kind of find out what was going on. And that's where we met numerous web sleuths, we call them. Uh There's this one site where a lot of them, a lot of these, you know, armchair detectives, uh, these internet sleuths kind of reside, and that's on web sleuths. And so they're a very interesting group. you, you know, you have people who troll missing and unidentified individuals trying to put a name to a face. You have people, um, conspiracy theorists. It was just a very interesting way to look at a crime that hadn't been solved. Mm. Uh, you know, to go kind of outside the police department, you know, to see what others were saying. Sure. It's interesting to me, at least, uh, again, because I spent most of my adult life living in New York City, I guess, Cropsey was about Staten Island, but the new series, the new documentary series, The Killing Season, and that's Long Island. And yeah. and another difference is Cropsey was primarily about mentally challenged children were being preyed upon. And in The Killing Season, it's uh, 10 dead sex workers, at least that's what we know about so far. Yeah. Do you think their occupation is has anything to do with the slowness of solving the case? Five years, ten bodies right on the beach? It does, but in a lot of numerous ways. It's not necessarily some kind of prejudice again, uh, from a law enforcement perspective, although I wouldn't rule that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, you know, sex workers uh, operate under the radar. Yes. Uh, you know, their goal is to evade law enforcement. Yes. Um, which makes them in so many ways the perfect victim. And so it adds another layer of complication in solving uh, their crimes. In fact, when we look at what's happening on a nationwide level, though, we're also finding out that sex workers are being killed in record numbers by serial murders. What's happening is, I think, um, you know, for, for kind of... Um, people who aren't trying to evade law enforcement, our mm-hmm. lives are very easily trackable yes. through our devices, through everything that we do. And so it, it becomes much more of a risk uh, for a serial murderer to go after a quote-unquote regular citizen mm-hmm. uh, versus sex worker. And so we're seeing a, an increased number there. And, and we're also seeing, you know, violence has always happened against sex workers. And, you know, there's this almost an archetype mm-hmm. in our society, basically, from Jack the Ripper, you yes. know, that these serial murders 
prey on these sex workers. You know, they're they get into cars with strangers. That's their business. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. and so as a result. Um, it's always going to be there, and and in many ways we've kind of said to ourselves that this Long Island case was very much a modern-day Jack the Ripper story. Let me use a phrase that evidently uh, has come out of uh, your research and and investigating the cases, or and maybe it's even something the police say, but re- these people are referred to as the missing missing. Yes. And... Besides the obvious, which is disturbing enough, the weight of that, the missing, missing, what does it uh, tell us about our hope, our faith, our society, our uh, expectations to solving this? It's very interesting. The missing, missing are, uh, for the most part, uh, women, sex workers who are killed and their bodies are found that nobody knows who they are. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, they're the missing missing because uh, when they go missing, nobody files a missing persons report mm. for them. So when their bodies are found, nobody knows who they are. Yes. They're, they're, they're nameless, they're faceless. Uh, you know, they're faceless, but they're nameless. Mm. And it, it's, it's really about a group in our society who are invisible. Mm. And a lot of these serial murders know that these women are invisible. Typically, they're from broken homes. There's some kind of sexual abuse which has led them to leave their homes, um, which has led them to uh, take to drugs to kind of dull the pain or for whatever reason. And and they become, uh, again, these victims. But the problem is, from a law enforcement perspective, they're so hard to track Mm. uh, because they're so marginalized and, and on the fringes of society. And so what we've discovered is not only is there this you know group of missing missing, not only uh, do serial killers, serial murderers know that they're out there, but police don't even know how many have died at the hands of serial murder. Uh, we've spoken to one woman, Kina Quinette, who's a professor at Purdue, um, who believes we could be looking at, you know, in upwards of 20,000 murders in the past decade that we have no idea even occurred. Wow. So that was fascinating to me. You know, in crops, yes, we looked at mentally disabled kids, and here we're looking at sex workers. You know, these are marginalized victims yes. for whatever reason who who fall to the cracks of our society, and you know they deserve justice just like everybody else. Of course. But there's one more important thing, and that's to note that sex work, as we know it, has changed with the advent of the internet. Uh, and the world's oldest profession mm-hmm. has changed as we know it. No longer are women walking the streets. Very much now today they're using places like Backpage, and it's very easy. So if you didn't, if you, you know, had, there was an economic downturn and you needed some money, you needed to pay your rent, it's not like you have to go out there and walk the streets. It doesn't require that sort of kind of gumption or desperation. Mm-hmm. Now you can take a picture of yourself post it online and say, I'll meet you in 20 minutes up at the Holiday Inn. So it's a lot, the barriers of entry, uh, as a guy named Bob Coker, uh, who wrote Lost Girls, likes to say, the barriers of entry have been lowered. And as a result, uh, a lot of women who would necessarily not do it, who who wouldn't do it, are now engaging in sexual. You know, we hear so much about uh, Russian women and the economic society there, pushing Russian women into prostitution. I hadn't thought about what you just said, but it, it makes sense. It's, there's, it's more incognito now, to, much to the difficulty of safety, security for the women who are involved. But 
more women that we might not suspect or expect at all could be involved in this out of financial desperation. It um, absolutely it's yeah. a very interesting kind of new scenario, and you would think posting your picture on the internet through a site called Backpage or through Craigslist, somehow there would be an added level of safety and security. Mm. But what we've also discovered, it's almost the opposite. Mm -hmm. It creates a layer of anonymity that we never really knew existed before. So while the transactional method of standing on the street corner, leaning into a car and kind of looking at the John per se and kind mm-hmm. of making a deduction. Am I going to get into this individual's car? Is he wild-eyed and crazy and, you know, hygiene is a problem or whatever the issue? Mm-hmm. There's no longer that... that Interview. That yeah, you know, there's no longer that expense, as you, as you say. And, and, and so, as a result, you know, when, when the deal is done, per se, over the phone and suddenly you knock on the door of the hotel room, or, or you're in the hotel room and the John comes to the door, mm. it's almost in a lot of ways like the transaction has already been done. Yes. And so it's much harder to back out in that scenario. And so it, we were very surprised that it was in some ways more dangerous. Yes. And the other thing is that it's taken sex work, as you said, out of these urban areas yes. and brought them into the suburbs, as was happening in Long Island, which creates another layer of spookiness and, and, yes. and, and, and eeriness. You know, I, um, I don't want to take you too far off subject, but uh, one thing that does occur to me that certainly police, I would think, I mean, I know some undercover cops, so I know this is true. Uh, there are police who watch these sites as well. And, of course, we know from the uh, Craigslist not terribly long ago, murderers watch these sites. So there are many ways in which this is uh, this has become a, a lot more dangerous than, um, than being a streetwalker or standing on a corner, I guess. Back to Cropsey for a moment, because... The connection I see, and I don't, I don't speak to what drives your mission, because you certainly are doing the public a service in a way that I always feel, you know, today we get our information primarily, uh, our news, I should say, from three sources, either corporate-owned news media, which is very repetitious gossip, or the social media, where you don't really know what to believe sometimes, and some of it can be extreme and rude and all that. But my favorite source is documentaries, even though, as I mentioned to you, uh, watching Cropsey again was was difficult. But my point is the connection is the vulnerable. The Cropsey was based primarily on a mentally challenged, physically challenged to children. Who could be more vulnerable to that? And of course, Andre Rand was uh, arrested and tried and convicted and... But now turning to, as you say, the the unknowns, the missing, missing, if you are not arrested and therefore have a, uh, fingerprints, killing a, a sex worker is pretty much a, a crime one can get away with. I hate to say it that way. I'm not encouraging anyone. But uh, do you see that connection, that the, the vulnerable, I mean, children are still being abducted. So is that a pattern that's been with America for since the beginning of America? Uh, taking advantage of the vulnerable? Yes. I mean, yes. I, I mean, in my work, I, I kind of, I like 
there to be definitely some advocacy uh-huh. in our storytelling. Yes. There needs to be, you know. And uh, I, I agree with you about where, where we're getting our news sources. But I think there's also another level. You know, it, it's, I, I like personally to go in and demystify what we believe the Hollywood tropes are. Yes. To show a, a different level of horror that you may not have thought about. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it's kind of like horror film, but real. And, yes. And that's what I like. Yes. And, you know, one of the things that motivated us in Cropsey was these kind of Blair Witch style films. Yes. Uh, you know, found footage films, and we want to, and I tried to say like, hey, listen, if you want to see something really scary. Yes. And real. This is, this is real. Yes. And, and also, but there was also a couple, you know, there's also a societal look. You know, I wanted to, to, to show how we looked at the mentally ill back then. Yes. And how that might, you know, in some ways you reap what you sow. Uh, look at how we treated the mentally ill back then. Mm-hmm. It, it was horrific. And, but there's also other things in terms of demystifying, you know, this idea of stranger danger. Yes. This fear, this, it, it was really a panic. It was a, a panic that we had brought on in the late 80s, kind of based upon Adam Walsh, uh, Eton Pates, and a couple others. And he even testified before Congress that children were being snatched and killed in, in the, you know, 50, 60, 100,000. And, and, and to be honest, that wasn't really true. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, less than 1% of all uh, child abductions were stranger abductions. But, you know... I wanted to just show this one case. And, and here, I, over the past years, you know, finishing Cropsey, people said, oh, you know, you should do another serial killer case. And I never considered Cropsey to be a serial killer case. It was more of an urban legend come true in my own backyard. Mm. I was very hesitant to do anything about serial killers. Mm. But a- after a while, it got so much with the, with the Hollywood tropes about, quote-unquote, serial killers that yes. I said, you know what, I, I want to find a case that allows me to go in and to do an active investigation, but at the same time to mystify all yes. these Hollywood tropes. You yes. know, serial killers aren't evil geniuses, and they're not they're, they're not titillating relationships between the serial killer and the female investigator. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not some subversively sexy uh, situation as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's real human tragedy. Yes, you know, and and that is what we don't want to face. We we like our our entertainment, we like our horror, we like our tragedy, but we don't we don't like it real. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I couldn't agree with you more, Josh, as I've I've never had a problem watching horror movies. You know, they don't scare me. But a real story like Cropsey and like I'm sure uh, the killing season will be, when there's a reality to it, it's so these are the facts before you and you leave it to the audience to decide what they believe or don't believe, and fear is a character in the film as well, not only on screen, but in the in the theater itself as we watch it. Anyway, I, I, all that to say, I, I agree with you. What is real, the real horror, is what is most terrifying. Um, let's, let's get a little upbeat just before we go. Could you give us that website you mentioned with the sleuths? Is it simply websleuths.com? Uh, Okay. Started, it started, by the way, in the Joan, uh, Joan Benet Ramsey case. You know, that's, yes. that's, that's the kind of case that brought all these people onto the Internet to, to kind of theorize. Yes. And it's fascinating. It's a fascinating place to go to check it out if you like true crime. And, and exactly. Okay, then I'll leave it at that. We'll take a short break. Everyone stay with us. My guest today 
uh, filmmaker and documentarian Josh Zeman. Stay with us. Discovery. Welcome to the Andy Film Minute. The Holocaust is undeniably one of history's greatest horrors. One of many lessons to be learned is that an incomplete attempt to wipe out a learned, artistically inclined people will spawn a million powerful stories to keep the memories alive. Nowhere in Africa is one. The Redlich family lives in privilege in pre-war Germany. Fearing the rise of the Nazi party, Walter has fled to Africa, working as caretaker on a hard-scrabble Kenyan farm, preparing a place for his family to weather the storm. He soon sends for his wife, Jettel, and daughter, Regina, cautioning them that life is hard. Bring a refrigerator and leave the fine china behind. Yet they arrive with a china-packed trunk and a fine ball gown purchased en route. This is a story of growth. Walter to a pride in himself, Jettel to an understanding and appreciation of a larger world, and Regina into a young woman with a deep love for the people and culture of Africa. Based on an autobiographical novel, the story is told through Jettel's memories, conjuring extraordinarily sensitive insights into the human condition. Nowhere in Africa, not in theaters, discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. My guest today is filmmaker and documentarian Josh Zeman. We've been talking both about an earlier documentary, Cropsy, which I've seen, but also a new series. The executive producer of the Killing Season docu-series is Academy Award-winning filmmaker Alex Gibney. And, Gibney, yes. Uh, and... Uh, and that's certainly worth uh, mentioning. The, he is the executive producer, and we are talking with the director, Josh Zeman, of The Killing Season, not to be confused with the Travolta and De Niro movie. The Killing Season, yes, is a new A&E Network premiere, a new original docu-series. Uh, it will premiere Saturday, November 12th at 9 p.m with back-to-back episodes. We can binge watch. Is that what they mean by that, Josh? Yes, you can binge watch. (laughs) I never thought I would do that, but you know I do, so there it is. I confess. (laughs) But now we've gone from Cropsey uh, and Stanton Island and mentally and physically challenged vulnerable children to Long Island with at least 10 dead sex workers, and that... This docu-drama uh, is The Killing Season, and you, did I did I hear correctly that you uh, feel that the Long Island serial killer situation is going beyond Long Island, that Long Island is just the beginning, that this might be a, uh, if not a national issue, it's certainly an East Coast issue from New York to Florida? Well, that's, that's one of the things that we discovered, um, kind of looking at this case, Speaking with journalists, web sleuthers, police, they mentioned that there were some other unsolved serial murders of sex workers, uh, and there were some very, very strange coincidences or connections, if you will, Mm -hmm. to some other cases. And 
looking at the Long Island case, we suddenly wanted to look at those cases as well to see could it be the same individual or what have you. And uh, it was very eye-opening and and kind of gave us this view of what was going on across America in this kind of dark underbelly. Yes. that we don't, that we very rarely see. And, you know, in a lot of ways we call it, you know, an American nightmare. And it really was that. Yes. Um, when you, when you really start to look at all these cases around the country, whether they're connected or not, it, it paints a very horrific, you know, uh, nightmarish viewpoint of, of, of things that normal people don't even understand, don't even know about. Exactly. And I, and I would like to say at this point, too, is we talk about Hollywood and the, the real underbelly of America, that underground society, if you will. Josh, from my experience with Cropsey anyway, Josh is not out about just scaring you or entertaining you. Josh is giving you reality to make you think, to start, dare I say, a cultural conversation. And the killing season, I think... Uh, it's probably a, a chilling ride through much of what we day-to-day Americans going about our business we don't know exists. So how do you open our eyes? I know film and video can do that, but how do you specifically? You know, it's, it's interesting. You have to work within the confines of the medium that you're given. And it, it was very interesting. Alex Gibney, who's our executive producer, he's an Oscar-winning documentarian. He yes. did... Um, such films like uh, Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. Yes. And he also did Taxi to the Dark Side, uh, Scientology, uh, you know, about the, the, the belief system inside the church. Yes. And so he is somebody who likes to really dig deep and uh, kind of pull back the curtain on what we think we know to show yes. us what the truth is. And we were very nervous about doing a uh, docuseries that looked at you know, the murders of sex workers. Yes. We, we felt it was too tragic, too um, garish, you know, and, and, and that the network wouldn't embrace it. Uh, but he said, you know what, embrace that and really dig deep. And that, when, when we did, when we said, you know what, what, what may, you may think is a weakness is actually our strength. And when we really began to look at these women who were sex workers, it, it suddenly showed us world we had no idea what was going on mm-hmm. and it, it really opened us up and so I thank him so profusely for saying no you know this is important yes. uh, and find the, the bigger deeper story but also find the broken system yes. because that's really what we're looking at here we're looking at, at broken systems and and you know in, in the pillars of, of, of society we never like to think that law enforcement in some ways is having you know at, at all being uh, you know impervious, you know, but yes. in this case it is, you know, in some ways they're powerless. And what we didn't even know was that we have this idea, basically, that law enforcement is putting our information into computers 24-7 and they know everything about us. Mm. And what we didn't know was how fractured our databases of murder are. Mm. In fact, there's no one single mandatory database that murder goes in. Uh, the FBI has a database, but it's not mandatory. So as a result, um, murders, not all the murders we have are put in there. Now, in some places like Canada, it, it is mandatory to rep- report murder to one centralized database, but not in the United States. How strange. Which, 
I, I found fascinating. Yes. And, and quite scary. Yes. Uh, you would think, you know, murder, you know, a, a record of humans being killed, you know, our, our basic survival instinct, you know, is, is, is to not be murdered. Yet we have no 100% accurate accounting in the United States of murder. It's mm. not mandatory. Local law enforcement is not required by law to report those murders to one singular federal database. That's a shocker. I had no idea. Thanks for sharing that, Josh. But it brings me back to, again, seeing your work, going in and actually meeting the families of the victims, the missing, missing. It was uh, extremely informative and, and disturbing. But in documentaries like Cropsey and now The Killing Season, at least we are given the opportunity to have a mature look. And, and you are using the Internet as your hunting ground to find clues and, un, uh, and to solve these bizarre serial killer cases. Uh, how is that working for you? How is the Internet working to help you with that? Well, it's very interesting. Um, we met a data, data journalist by the name of Tom Hargrove. And Tom Hargrove had basically taken upon himself through Freedom of Information Act requests to um, get all murder data from all 50 states. Mm. And he's created what is the most comprehensive database of murder. And this is a citizen. This is not a, a member of law enforcement. So wow. it's crazy and, and so surprising to us that a, a citizen has, has the most comprehensive database of murder in the United States. Wow. Now, he's created an algorithm where basically he puts in, for example, types in female homicide, strangulation, and what he's discovered is that serial murders leave a statistical trace of mm. what they do. Mm. And so he is able to basically, through the data, uncover evidence of serial murders that the public doesn't know about. And it happened in, for example, Gary, Indiana, a couple of years ago. Mm. He um, was doing some database searches and found out there were an unusually large number of female strangulations in Gary, Indiana. Wow. Uh, he contacted the police and uh, local law enforcement, and they said, you know, no, this, this can't be true. And hmm. tragically, uh, a, a gentleman was later arrested after a number of additional murders, and there really was a serial killer in Gary, Indiana. That oh. Dis oh, my God. Discovered through the data. But those guys who can put together you know, connect the dots using all of the 21st century devices that I'm still learning about, but doing better. But to put that together and see the pattern and then act on it, you know, and if, if the police don't respond, at least they can connect with somebody like you and we get a documentary that educates us. What do you think? I, you know, to me it's fascinating, but, but here's the issue. The issue is, you know, again, we have this, ill-conceived notion that government is using our data mm. with which to spy on us 24-7. And in fact, domestically, the exact opposite is true. Wow. Local law enforcement are uh, underpaid and overworked. Yes. They are too busy going out to um, interview witnesses, which is the first thing you should do. But yes. what they don't have time to do, they don't have the training to do, is to use databases and use data as another crime-fighting tool. You know, the building blocks are in place, but mm -hmm. right now the public sector is very much behind the private sector in using 
data. For example, insurance companies. Insurance companies use data sure. to basically figure out, you know, your health and everything within within you know an inch of your life. Yes. They've figured all this out. Um, you know, algorithms. Netflix does a better job <laughs> yes. figuring out what movies. Oh yes. I... But but tragically, law enforcement is very much behind the curve yes. when it comes to the same thing. And of course, this opens up issues of, of, of private information and whether or not law enforcement will then use that data to somehow pre <laughs> figure out whether you're inclined to murder or not. But there yet, and I don't think we have to worry about those kind of science fiction ideas. Mm. What we do have to worry about is that there are, you know, individuals out there targeting women um, and killing them, and we are not able to track them through data because, you know, the, the, the government will isn't there, the financing is not there, and, and the know-how is not there yes. among most law enforcement agencies. Well, you know, I don't know that I have heard the term data journalist before. But um, you've explained it, and it sounds like something that it sounds like a missing piece in the system. Uh, and with the right person, um, we we need it. We need it. Uh, tell us a bit oh, about absolutely. yeah. Tell us a, a bit about uh, your working relationship with Rachel Mills. Uh, Rachel and I have worked together on, on numerous projects. Uh, she's a great researcher and partner in crime for sure, and mm-hmm. you know has gone in and you know helped us look at it and I guess I come from the real true crime yes. and she comes from, from more of the general audience sense and so it's good in our working relationship where she's able to understand things uh, from the general audience sense and kind of is able to uh, boil it down to its you know base elements and really understand it and so it's, it's, it's a good working relationship in that way. Great. Now you've told us about um, your cyber data journalist and uh, websleuths.com and the killing season is produced for a and e network i think we said that by jigsaw productions and gigantic pictures Uh, how is that great i mean you know uh jigsaw is out kidney's company has been very helpful gigantic company that i work with and, and and uh you know everybody's making excellent documentary films and everybody's continuing to work hard um, Gigantic Pictures is owned by a guy named uh, Brian Devine, mm-hmm. Brooke Devine, and uh, they've been very helpful in, you know, they do mostly documentaries, advocacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did another documentary um, about uh, the big spill oh, yes. uh, out in the Gulf, so yes. um, which was up for an Emmy last year. So, again, a lot of this advocacy through, through documentarians. Uh, to documentary film, and I think that that's very important. And thankfully, audiences are now coming to understand that documentaries don't have to be very dry. Mm-hmm. They can be entertaining as well as, you know, show a, a deeper understanding or, or pull back the curtain to reveal something that we had no idea about. Exactly, and make us think, and that's what you do. Make us, make us look at it and, and want to know more and do our own online research. Does the killing season come up with... Um, any sort of definitive connection of these serial killers or killings from Atlantic City to Daytona Beach? I know we touched on that, but are you getting any hard-line connection uh, of, of that sort of East Coast situation? Well, it, it is very interesting. These cases are unsolved, and you know, I don't want to get into reveal too much. Okay. You have to watch the series to sure. see uh, the hardcore connections, but let's just say they are all connected, just maybe not in the ways that we all might immediately think. Mm. 
you do know how to to uh, take us up right to the edge. I appreciate that. I do. All right. So, what final words for us, uh, Josh? Tell us what what we should look for uh, in the killing season and what we should learn from it, and uh, how how can we help? What can we do? Well, yeah. I mean. One of the things that we wanted to do very specifically with Killing Season was to create a conversation piece, but also only tell part of the story. Mm. And so what we're very into is the idea of, um, of organic engagement with the audience. And so what we think is really interesting and kind of new here, um, much like the jinx or making of a murder, you can watch an episode and then go on to WebSleuth to see in real time what is happening, what people are talking about, and what people are saying. Mm. So you can actually be part of the ongoing discussion mm. about the case. And so you can, you know, it allows for you to kind of, uh, you know, I don't want to, you know, trivialize, but play along, if you will, mm-hmm. in terms of what's going on. Excellent. And again, that is Web Sleuths, S-L-E-U-T-H-S dot com, Web yep. Sleuths. How how does one decide or or become a legitimate data journalist? Is that... ah, that's, a, that's a good question. Mm. I mean, you know, it's a new field, and uh, it's it, it, it's always evolving. And and you can look at guys like what Thomas Hargrove are doing. You know, uh-huh. the answers to so many of our questions are in the data, and it's using the data to kind of make your point. Of course, yes. the problem is data, as we know. Yes. Um, you know, looking looking at political. Um, debates and things like that can be manipulated in many yes. different ways to yes. always make your point. But what, what we're finding is you can look at trends and see amazing trends in the data. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, I was speaking with uh, this data journalist about about the you could almost in some ways measure the amount of murder or crime that's come from the opioid epidemic that is currently sweeping mm. this nation. Mm-hmm. And so you can actually figure out the results from that opioid epidemic, how much is being spent, how much murder it's, it's created, and all those other things. Wow. And so it really helps you get a handle on these big picture items, yes. which, which in some ways are just incomprehensible for us to even understand without mm-hmm. data. Sure. All right. We have been talking to the director of The Killing Season, uh, Joshua Zeman. And uh, The Killing Season is an A&E Network premiere of a new original docuseries, The Killing Season. It premieres Saturday, November 12th at 9 p.m. With back-to-back episodes, which we all love. And Josh, I'm so grateful for your being on the show today. We really appreciate both your being a guest and your work that you do to open, you know, that cold water in our face is what we need. Please pass along our best wishes to the entire team, producer Alex, and, of course, your partner in crime, Rachel Mills. Okay? Thank you. We wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Bye now. Take care now. Thank you. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. Another film rental discovery. 
Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. These days, action movies are defined by explosions, hot chicks, and cartoonish villains. However, as proven by Danish director Nicholas Winding Refn's masterful Drive, an action movie does not have to be loud and bombastic to be effective. It can actually have an intelligent and artistic quality and still be thrilling. Ryan Gosling stars as the nameless driver, a stuntman who moonlights as a getaway driver for criminals. After meeting a new neighbor and her young son, he agrees to help her recently paroled husband rob a pawn shop to pay off a mob debt. When the robbery goes south, driver is forced to right some wrongs and protect his neighbor and himself. The film is riveting. Goslin's portrayal emanates power and confidence, and his detached demeanor suits his character's complexity. The opening sequence of the film, in which he and two burglars evade the cops on an eye-popping chase through Los Angeles, sets the character up and makes it impossible. For us not to root for him, Albert Brooks's performance as Bernie Rose, a movie producer turned mobster, is another highlight. Brooks imbues the character with both wit and malice. Reffin, who won Best Director at Cannes for his efforts, and a brooding soundtrack by Cliff Martinez, have made Drive into a modern marvel. Drive, not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the reasonable voice. Thanking you for joining us in becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Domestic violence, corporate terrorists, equals justice denied. It's not just guns; it's fists, knives, gangs, bullies, human traffickers, spousal abusers, drug pushers, rapists, bombers, serial killers, mass murderers. Child molesters, warmongers, war profiteers, revenge seekers, bigots, statin pushers, politicians sequestering poor, young, and elderly, and those abusing their authority, whether costumed in Wall Street suits, police uniforms, or street tattoos, these are our domestic terrorists. December twenty twelve, six adults at Sandy Hook and twenty of their elementary school students murdered. June twenty fifteen, nine African Americans gunned down while attending their Bible study in a Charleston church. Now five men who honored family, country, and uniform, dead in Chattanooga at the hands of a man with a gun. But it's not just guns. It's us. Whether a vengeful Murdoch posting an eighty-year-old photo of a seven-year-old future English monarch imitating newsreels of the then rising fall of Germany, or the short-sighted, narrow-minded, bottom-line puppeteers of corporatism, or open carry, twisted Second Amendment, it's all short eyes inflicting the most damage when coming from those we trust to keep us safe. Like teachers, police, parents, presidents. Thankfully, America's new pastime is not selfies, but smartphones recording the increasing heat wave of raging violence. Still, not all have a clear definition of bullying. At the very least, violence is aggressive intimidation. However, now violence, like the blob, 
is increasingly suffocating our peace of mind. Like lava flow, it claims territorial control over the vulnerable and those least expecting to be targets. Violence entreats some to lock and load, mission focused on recapturing an illusion that has forever eluded them. Following bloodshed headlines, they are claimed by chains, diminished humanity, and self-destruction. Misguided, they are ruled by digital devices, disconnecting unemployment, compromised media, and shameless politicians unashamedly on the take. Some, power-hungry, transfixed by a little power, shoot fleeing unarmed men, wrestle bikini-clad teens to the ground, and insist a 28-year-old activist on a mission to let her people go hanged herself with a plastic bag in a Texas cell. Violence lashes out from a void we fail to comprehend as it reigns us back in at Cain and Abel. Whether western drought, central tornadoes and lightning, eastern floods or congressional constipation, American life has been accosted by daily manipulation of corporate-owned TV ratings race, with Chuck Todd opining about Trump opining about McCain's heroism, in a war in which Todd, Cheney, and Trump have no experience. Then Johnny-come-lately pot of GOP candidates chime in, calling the kettle black. It's not just the guns or the media trumped-up loudmouths. It's who and what we applaud and why. It's the ideas to which we genuflect, and it's all on us. It's all in the marketing message, so it's on us to vigilantly halt all attempts to absorb us into numbing indifference. The blame game of everything's coming up ISIS or mental illness is the money changer's malleable sales pitch. United We Stand demands its time. Peace be with our uncivil wars. Cease and desist talking past each other. Start listening twice as much as we speak. Feel each other's pain. It's not just about flags and guns. It's the aura around which we've been conditioned to champion them. It's not just guns, it's those who insist we need guns, that we're somehow incomplete without guns. So where is the bottom? First, let's let go of, not my problem, and looking within, acknowledge all acts of violence are motivated by fear and anger. Guns are merely the steroids. Let us educate inequitable fears out of our addiction to violent tendencies, and we will cure the need for guns to prove what is at best fleeting mastery. Then, if not world peace, perhaps a bully-free society. Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you.
Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the Donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard around the world.